Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. As we've alluded to on our other shows, this offseason, our Crack Rackets team attempted to speak with every Power 5 men's and women's head coach employed throughout the college tennis world. We asked each of them about their team's respective 2021 seasons and what we should expect from them here in 2022. Of course, we also offered them a platform to share their thoughts on some of the big picture topics in college tennis. It is a fantastic series that our team is ecstatic to finally start sharing with the broader college tennis community over the next six weeks. Fans can expect no fewer than 10 episodes a week to be posted on this feed. A huge shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for their support with this series. Remember, go to tennis-point.com right now. Use that promo code CR15 to express your thanks. With all of that said, we're ready to get to today's episode. So Westoff, hit those credits. Let's start today's show. Joining us on the podcast once again today, I'll say it, a returning champion here. On our Cracked Racket shows, of course, you know him, so many accolades, whether it be as a professional player himself, as a collegiate coach, a man who has dedicated his life to the sport of tennis, my friend, Texas A&M men's tennis head coach, Steve Denton. Coach, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you, Alex, for having Uh, me on. I feel like it's easier to just say that than to list all of the accomplishments because what am I going to go with? The only guy to beat Nastasi in like 74 of April or something like that. I mean, I'm sure I could pull out the factoid like that. I'm sure it exists. Well, that would probably, you know, most people are dead that know that. You know, so <laughs> I don't know that that's very relevant for today's game. <laughs> that's fair, but it, it you know, I'm I'm recording this and listeners will hear it after this date, but we're recording this as the ATP Tour Finals is going and you shared a little tidbit with me that at one point it was just you and McEnroe to play both the singles and the doubles. My question to you before we even get into today's interview, when is the next time we will see a player on the men's side? Certainly Barbara Krejcikova just did it on the women's side, but on the men's side, do you think we'll ever see a player play both singles and doubles again? Oh, man, that's a great question. I, I I wish it were so. I know McEnroe was one that, you know, continued to play both all pretty much throughout his whole career. And, uh, you know, then I think players kind of decided that doubles was, uh, you know, played later at night. You know, it was pretty taxing on the body. And in order to really be fresh for the singles, that's kind of taken a back seat. And it's unfortunate because – Every time the top players play doubles, well, the crowds are better at these events because obviously the the name players draw the crowds, and they're also very good doubles players. You know, I submit to you that Nadal, you know, Fed and Djokovic and Murray are all really, really good doubles players because they're just great tennis players. But they, 
they have opted to not play too much doubles just because of a rigorous schedule they play and trying to save their body and also uh, have a longer career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my response is always it's fascinating because on the one hand, yeah, you'd love to see all of them play doubles together, and certainly that's what makes Olympic doubles feel that much more special. But at the same time, there's now room for the Trey Hueys of the world and the Austin Krejcheks of the world and you know the Joe Salisburys of the world to go out there and make a name for themselves. And yes, all of those players have college tennis ties, but you know those are guys that may get boxed out early in their career of Grand Slam opportunities if all of the top-ranked players are playing. At the same time, I mean, money's, I'm sure, part of it as well. But when did that, when did that shift happen when the top guys just stopped playing doubles? Because, again, it's clear 70s, 80s, early 90s, most guys were playing both. Yeah, they were. Um, and even before us, believe it or not, in the slams, a lot of the old Aussies were playing all three events, yeah. and including <laughs> mixed, and playing five sets of singles and doubles and, and then three sets of mixed. So... You know, it's just a different era. Uh, I think the money got really big, and I think, you know, the <laughs> top players kind of decided that they were better, uh, you know, other than a guy like McEnroe who c- continued mm-hmm. to do it uh, throughout his career. I think, and you'd have to ask John this, but my theory on John was that he didn't really like practicing that much, so <laughs> he, he used the doubles to practice. And, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously he was very – team oriented going to Stanford to play college tennis. And I think, you know, he really was into helping Peter Fleming and, and, uh, you know, them having a great uh, career together. And so, uh, and I think he just loved competing. And after him, I don't recall that it lasted much longer uh, that guys played singles and doubles. I know Ed Berg and Anders Yared, you know, had a pretty good run for a while and were one of the top teams in the world. Um, but then Edberg even kind of stopped uh, playing more doubles and kind of focused on his singles. I don't remember if Boris Becker did, and I certainly don't think Pete or Andre played a whole lot of doubles um, that I'm aware of. But uh, it certainly seemed to stop before the before the turn of the century. It seemed like. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's fascinating and in particular uh, because you look for college tennis as a pathway to the pros. I mean, a guy like Will Blumberg, who I think has already won four titles in his first six months as a pro. And, you know, I'm looking at the rankings right now. It's fascinating. Just this little quartet. You've got Matthew McDonald, former NCAA champion at UCLA. He's ranked 55. Brooksby spent a semester at Baylor. He's 56. You've got Arthur here at 58 as well. I mean, those right. are all college guys obviously who spent time i mean mackie and arthur more so perhaps than jensen but guys who spent time and got better in college and you look at the doubles rankings again whether it be salisbury and rajiv ram who you know both college guys as well um, again don't I, I forget know, about camp don't forget about camp yeah, Moore, who's of course competing now as an alternate at the atp tour finals and has put sure. together a top 10 sort of season Right. How? Right. Where are you at with college as a pathway to the pros? You know, again, entering the twenty twenties. Well, I'm a I'm a real proponent of it. I I think there are a few freaks, yeah. um, and I mean guys like the Yannick Sinners and the Tsitsipasses and the uh, earlier on Djokovic and and Nadal, uh, but most guys are not that equipped to play the tour at that early age. They're not physically ready. You know, the game has gotten so much more physical. They're not certainly not mentally ready. 
they're still thinking about the wrong things at that age. Uh, and so I don't see them. Uh, I see very few that are ready. And I would propose to you for my own career and Kevin Curran's career, who was with me at Texas, I don't think either one of us would have done any good, you know, that early on, you know, going straight out of high school into the pros. We probably would have maybe never made it had we done it that way. I think most players, it takes more time to develop and they have to go a different route. And that doesn't mean that they're not going to get there. Uh, case in point, uh, Cameron Norris or in our case, Arthur, or you look at now, I think J.J. Wolf is going to be a, uh, you know, he had an injury that slowed him down, but he looks like someone that's coming and there's others as well. They're just taking a little bit longer uh, to get to where they would like to go. And there's nothing wrong with that. They actually may end up being higher than some of these players. And, you know, I, I've always felt that the earlier you go on the tour, the greater risk that you get knocked off the tour, the later you wait, the better chance you have of, of it sticking for longer. And uh, now that the guys are playing well into the thirties, um, you could go to college, be 22 years old and still have a 14 or 15 or 16 year pro career, which is, uh, you know, more than most. So uh, I think it's a great pathway and I think most players should consider it. And I see more European players now catching on to the fact uh, with the Arthurs and with the Cam Norris and others that have had success in college, I see that them thinking, this path is a great path for them as well. And even their federations are looking at it much more seriously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with all of that said, it feels like the 2021 season was, again, you know, there's been a, guy, a thread of guys you go back to 2015 and, you know, that group, whether it be Jeremy Efferding, Shane Vincent, Harrison Adams, and, you know, on that roster, I believe, was a young either Vashro or Habib. And, you know, that group from 2015 to 2021, they reached, I think, three of the four quarterfinals that you guys have made in Texas A&M men's tennis history. And, you know, that 2021 season, obviously, it was a weird fall. And I know the SEC had some more league way than other conferences but you know you guys didn't have the sort of I suppose you know rigorous competition and everything that you normally have how helpful is it when you have guys like Val like Hattie like you know Aguilar at the top as well how helpful was that for your team early in the season did you feel like you guys missed a beat you know starting in January or did you feel you know again that pro atmosphere was able you were able to set that culture from the start in January yeah, I think it helped us a lot. Um, you know, like you said, uh, a lot of teams didn't get to play as much maybe as we got to play in the STC. Um, I did think that that year was a tough year for many players. You know, they sat on the sidelines for a while. There were more injuries for us. We hadn't had injuries before. We had I, – I remember one match last year, Alex. I We were playing a top 10 or 15 team. I don't remember who it was, but I looked on the sideline. And there were four guys over there uh, on that sideline, uh, Carlos, Hadi, uh, Guido, and Barney, who had played on the team in the year before in, in the 20 season. Uh, they were all sitting over there eating a sandwich, and I was trying to figure out how the hell we were going to win this match. Um, and I think there were a lot of injuries as a result of guys being inactive for that year as well and maybe coming back and playing a little bit too much, but at least we got the opportunity to play. Um, and uh, as it turned out, we kind of got healthy toward the end of the season. And 
you know, were able to make a reasonable run in the NCAA. Yeah, it's fascinating you say that because I've been, you know, interviewing all these Power 5 coaches and somewhere between 9 to 12 doubles pairings, that's the average number it feels like for most coaches. You hit 10 last year. Now, what you have that perhaps other coaches did not have, you played 13 players in singles throughout the course of the year, and that is an extraordinarily high number. Now, obviously, part of that was a byproduct, as you mentioned, of the injuries you guys were dealing with throughout the course of the year. But, you know, how helpful was it, or I don't know if it's more helpful, frustrating throughout the course of the year, whatever it may be, to get that many guys' repetitions? Does that help you in practice throughout the course of the year? I think so. I mean, obviously, one of the difficulties of having a bigger team is to have everybody continue to be engaged. I mean, I I heard an interview with Brian Shelton not long ago saying that he spent a lot of time with the guys that were not in the lineup. And I do the same uh, to make them feel like that they're still a very important part of this equation. Uh, yes, you need to work with your players that are going to play in the matches on Friday and Sunday in the SEC. But you also are preparing for the future. And also, in case you don't know, I mean, you kind of, by playing with these other players, you get a feel for, you know, how well they're playing at that time and if they're ready to jump in and can they jump in and be successful. And so, you know, there are a lot of different factors, chemistry and everything else, but I think it's really important uh, to have those guys continue to be engaged and obviously getting to play real matches uh, helps them in that regard. Mm-hmm. And I want to get back to Hattie and Val and you know Carlos, but I want to start with a guy who's obviously a returner for you this season in Noah Schachter, who you know played all over the lineup, particularly in the top half of the lineup last season. He plays 26 matches uh, last year in du- 26 of the 28 matches. I guess he finished uh, during the course uh, of the 2021 dual match season. He's obviously one of, if not the most, you know, experienced returner you bring back this season. What growth did you see from Noah last year? How has that growth translated this fall? Well, I think he, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head and that he's played a lot of matches. And, mm-hmm. you know, he and like a lot of players have kind of a defensive foundation mm-hmm. as a player. And I think one of the things that we have really focused on with him, and I think he's improved significantly as a result, is to take that defensive foundation and look for opportunities to be to play more offense. Because we knew last year that we were going to lose several of these players, uh, and we knew that he was going to have to step up and play, you know, a bigger role at a higher part of the lineup. Which you know happens after guys graduate and move on. You've got to get guys to step up and play. You know big man's tennis and uh so we focused a lot of attention on on that with him and he's he's beginning to play some you know pretty significant matches playing some pretty good uh, players and you know he was up a break in the third when we played in a little south carolina thing against daniel rodriguez and i think that's progress he didn't win the match uh but he's certainly showing signs that he can you know play at a higher level against better competition and that's what you want to see you know, from your players that they're improving significantly from year to year. Mm -hmm. And he clinched, I believe, that NCAA round of 16 match for you guys against Mississippi State. And I remember thinking in that moment, oh, that's big moving forward because, again, by experience, and I want to get to some of the other returners, some of the freshmen as well, but he's a guy you circle as someone who's, you know, probably going to play at the number one singles position. And you can confirm or deny it's up to you, but 
is he ready to make that jump to be with the you know Vale Riffises of the world, the Waltons of the world, Rodriguez's of the world? Is he ready to make that jump this season? Well, I mean, sometimes <laughs> you don't have a choice, right? Yeah, uh, I sure. Mean, uh, but uh, I, I think he's improved significantly. So time will tell. I know that uh, I'm excited about the opportunity of sitting on the court with him and helping him uh, in some of those op- in some of those matches. And I have not spend as much time with him in the past i i spent a lot of time you know with carlos hottie and val last year uh mm-hmm. and now that they're have moved on you know i'm gonna be uh on a court of a couple of new guys that i haven't been on the court with a lot so you know me getting to know them and them getting to know me um you know it's going to be a big part of our success this year i think and and those guys are I think they're looking forward to the challenge. They're just going to have to step up and play. We're, we've got a bunch of guys that are about the same level. We're really deep. If we were to play uh, a 12-man dual match, we'd be in pretty good shape. Unfortunately, we only get to play half of those. Uh, and so our guys are just going to have to step up. We've never backed off our schedule, Alex. We've always played you know, a lot of top 10 teams every year. And, and this year is no different. I just didn't feel like that that was the – the right thing to do is to back off, uh, but to allow these guys to go through this and learn and get better. And if they get plenty of opportunities, you know, they're going to raise their level because they know they're going to have to. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about some of the other returners, but just to put a final bow on 2021, because again, you know, Val and, and Carlos and Hattie, you know, they were part of that 2018 run where you guys make the NCAA semifinals. And, you know, obviously that team was extraordinary. SEC, you know, regular season champions. And uh, this is a team that, again, two of the four quarterfinals in program history this group was responsible for there probably have been a third one had we played a 2020 ncaa tournament what was that ride like for you throughout the season just again knowing how much that group has meant to the program right it was great to get to spend the time with them we were super disappointed and not getting to finish the 20 season we had started off in conference really well we had played you know kentucky and south carolina and florida and we're, you know, riding high, and then obviously we got shut down. So that was very disappointing. But I guess in one respect, uh, because Val didn't want to end like that, and neither did those other guys, they all wanted to come back to school. And uh, so it set the table for the 21 season, which was a special season. As I said, we, we had more than our fair share of injuries, but proud of the guys for stepping up and playing the way they played. And and uh, working hard and giving ourselves a chance you know we played uh florida in the sec tournament that year in the semis and we're we're three two up uh with hottie coming back from injury his first match back to play sam riffis and he's up a break in the third and and noah's up a break in the third against bignell who didn't lose Mm -hmm. so we had a shot there and then we go the ncaa tournament and you said we got through mississippi state and we play a quarterfinal match against uh, against Florida. Um, you know, tough crowd. We're basically playing them a, uh, in a home match. And uh, you, we won a really exciting doubles point that looked like we were going to lose. And then Bjorn Thompson comes up with a freakish half volley, and we end up stealing the doubles. And, and then it's looking pretty good for us. Uh, Val's up. Uh, break in the third against Dwart, who he'd beaten both other times. Um, 
thought he's playing a close match with Riffis, but Riffis beats him again, you know, six and four. Carlos is up three, loving the third against Andrade, and we're beating Goodger at six mm-hmm. um, with uh, Guido Marson up a, up a, in the third set. So there was a path there to win that match, and then obviously because of how strong they were throughout the lineup and how how uh, how they were able to win so many matches, especially at four, five, and six. Um, to put that kind of pressure on you, we just couldn't hold on against them, and then they, and then they ran the table. So mm-hmm. it was a special year, and I was disappointed for our guys because I felt like that in '20 we were on a real roll, and maybe we were a Final Four or at least a quarterfinal team. And then again, obviously in '21, and not to get that chance to maybe push a little further, uh, you know, it was a bit disappointing, but also very proud of the guys of how resilient they were and how they fought and came back and, you know, were able to make a little bit of a run in the tournament before, before we faced, you know, just a a better team on that night. Mm -hmm. Do you think if the match was played at, I don't know, 7 PM instead of 2 AM. And if there were two rain delays instead of 17 rain delays, as there were that (laughs) night, wasn't that delightful coach? What a, what a night that was in Orlando. Um, (laughs) No, it was, it was a great match. You're right. And you know, again, Aguilar was, I think down a set and three love before he rips off like nine out of 10 games or something crazy like that at three. And just, you know, your team was right there. There's no doubt about that with the Floridas, with the Tennessee's of the world and now you know we do turn the page to 2022 and it's a very new group uh certainly in terms of uh just experience at the top of the lineup and just guys who are going to be getting a ton of playing time this season what is the approach for you in a fall like that where you know again not to say there aren't guys up and down the lineup who have some experience certainly as we've mentioned you've got a guy like noah you've got a guido marson who's played a bunch of matches last year what are the emphasis, you know, what are the things you guys are emphasizing here this fall? Well, I mean, I think most importantly is to, uh, you know, focus on each one of their their games and trying to formulate a game style for them that they need to play to be successful moving up and playing against better players um, and, and forcing them to be out of their comfort zone a bit more uh, just because we know they're going to be out of their comfort zone a bit mm-hmm. in the spring. Uh, you know, last few years, they've had the luxury of seeing guys at the top of the lineup that, you know, could kind of help them to relax a little bit. And now they're those those guys. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a little bit different. Um, and but, you know, I think that these kids, uh, you know, came to A&M because they wanted to compete against top teams. They want a chance to go play pro tennis. And this is just the, the next uh, opportunity for them to kind of step up and, you know, Carlos, as you said, in 18, Carlos and Val kind of played four and five, and then they had to move up. And this is just the next progression for these guys. They're going to have to step up and play better against, uh, you know, more experienced, better opponents. And they're just going to have to raise their game. That's as simple as that. And, you know, I expect they will. Uh, I don't know when that'll happen during the season, uh, but, you know, I expect us by the end of the season to be a really, uh, a really good team again, and we'll see whether that happens or not. Um, obviously, I think we're gonna we're gonna struggle in some matches. Uh, it's just you know, there's too many still all-star teams out there, mm-hmm. uh, and we're facing most of them. And so uh, I know we're gonna take our lumps, but I also recognize that I think 
as we get toward the end, uh, I think our team will, as they've done in previous years because of being tested with a lot of tough matches, that they're going to get a lot better. You mentioned the freedom you guys had last fall. I know talking to other SEC men's coaches, one of the byproducts is the fondness for hidden duels and playing them in the fall. And something I'm asking all of the coaches about is just what is the role of the fall calendar? Is it to focus on the individuals? Is it to best prepare for the duel match in the spring? If the objective is the latter, then playing more hidden duel matches makes sense. And I'm curious if you think that's something we're going to see more of in the fall, just because, you know, again, that is as close to a team match as you can get and as as great as individual matches are you don't know how a guy's going to perform until they're three all down and everyone's you know everyone's around them right i well first of all they're exciting for the coaches i've heard uh other coaches talk about that if we go to these tournaments that they're there from eight o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night Mm -hmm. playing singles and doubles uh because you're only playing you're playing six or seven or eight matches in three days on Mm -hmm. a weekend tournament so that's not as exciting for the coaches, but you know, I I think that um, these dual match or these hidden dual format matches, like you said, give us a bit of a a peek into what's going to happen and how these guys are going to handle it. And I think they're just a lot of fun for the guys to play in a mm-hmm. team format competition. Uh, just in general, playing against someone of like level. Uh, you know, where they're playing singles and doubles and they're getting a taste of it. Uh, and I think, uh, I think you are going to see more of them. I know that we've talked about it in the sec and we see the importance of it. We see the excitement of our players, uh, playing in those types of events. And there are still plenty of ample opportunities for them to go on their own to play, you know, UTR tournaments and, and $25,000 pro tournaments and the occasional challenger if their level's high enough for them to get that as well. And so, um, you know, I think that uh, these tournaments are here to stay and uh, I, I see us playing more and more of them. And we played one at South Carolina again this year. It went great. And, and we've actually changed our format for Sherwood, mm-hmm. which has been a, a, a tournament that's UCLA, USC, Stanford and us. We're going to change it to a, a hidden dual type of a format this year for the first time. We were going to do it last year, but we, but COVID kind of got us and we didn't get to go out there. Uh, so we're going to do that, and I think you're going to see uh, more universities and more teams uh, doing a lot of those hidden dual matches uh, in preparation for their season. Where are you on the? proper date for the NCAA individual tournament because for me if the purpose of the fall is going to be to play individuals move the NCAA tournament there now ideally I would say second week of the U.S. Open what a perfect spotlight that would be for college tennis there are some mechanical issues we can get into if you'd like but other than that if the purpose for the fall is to prepare for the dual match season in the spring it's undeniable that playing a proximity, you know, to the closest proximity to an actual dual match is going to be more beneficial for all parties involved. And while I do think there are some drawbacks, you don't want to typecast kids thinking, oh, I'm playing five through eight every weekend. You know, that's all I'm going to be playing. You, if you're that number eight guy, you want a shot at a Vashiro, at a Habib during the fall. And that's something you get in the individuals. But I think the the timing of the NCAA tournament could be the solution to that question if you put the individuals in the fall then you have two distinct seasons otherwise it's just kind of like what what's the point of what we're doing in the fall 
Right. Well, I, I, you know, we haven't done it yet. There's been a lot of discussion. I know mm-hmm. Tim Cass is a big proponent of it. Uh, you know, many think that the NCAA tournament is too long, mm-hmm. uh, that after the team is over, that it's anticlimactic. Uh, some of the top players are ready to go home. They're tired. They've had a long, you know, dual match season. Uh, so certainly from that standpoint, I certainly get it. Uh, it's kind of just breaking tradition a bit. You know, we've always had it that way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it should be, be that way going forward. I know that in tennis, because of our four-and-a-half scholarships, often you have new players coming in January to play on your team. Obviously, those players would not be eligible for the NCAA championship had you got a top, let's say, a top uh, player from Europe that comes and he plays high on his team. Well, he wouldn't be eligible for that tournament until the following year. So I guess that's a, you know, potentially a negative, but there are a lot of positives. The other part is our, our 144 days, uh, Alex, mm-hmm. that we have to put our plan of schedule in. And if, mm-hmm. if that there's been talk of having that tournament, maybe right before Thanksgiving and then extending the fall to a later period, and that's a possibility or starting early. But if then, if you start early, like you talked about, um, if you start too early, then you have to start your clock early, which means then you even have to shut your fall off even earlier. And already I don't like the fact that we're one of a few sports mm-hmm. that we basically, you know, we're kind of almost shut down now besides the off season, you know, four hours a week of tennis and four hours of fitness. Um, I don't like the fact that we start our dual match season in January and basically we're two months off. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's, that causes potential injuries. Obviously, our players are not as sharp and ready to go. Uh, and, you know, a lot of seasons are won and lost based on what happens in that six or eight weeks where we don't have them. Mm-hmm. Um, and here we are, maybe one of only a few sports that, you know, imagine it's kind of like a bowl game. You, mm-hmm. you stop playing the regular season, but at least they get to play till maybe the beginning of December in football. But then they have a bowl game, you know, a month or so later. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really kind of the only equivalent that I can think of. Most mm-hmm. sports, they continue on and play. And so we have a problem there in my in my thinking and that, you know, our players are, are not training enough to get ready for a season. And here we are having a six or eight week gap. So I don't know how that all plays into it. I have actually thought in the past, and of course I – you know, I'm an old guy and I get shot down a lot with my ideas, but <laughs> I had thought we ought to have a basketball type of a schedule and that we played our, our preseason in the fall. Um, and then we started conference and, you know, when we came back in January, uh, have an NCAA tournament, um, maybe in the April area, uh, while campuses are still, you know, in session so so that we're bustling like we were in the old days when we played at georgia when campuses were still in they were in classes still Mm -hmm. and we had huge crowds Mm -hmm. and being able to do that and then giving the guys a break so then they were ready to go play tournaments in the summertime instead of being burned out and really not wanting to play too much until july because you know they're worn out from playing a, a long dual match schedule but the problem with that is is the northern schools are at a disadvantage mm-hmm. um, because they don't get outside 
until you know around the time that we would have the NCAA tournament and that just doesn't really work very well for for them and obviously a lot of schools would vote against it as that you know because of that fact but just looking at it from what would be best for the student athletes you know in terms of uh, having a regular having a season mm-hmm. that would that would work great but it just doesn't work logistically for half the country no, I like that. I hadn't heard the basketball schedule format, and it works for me. Yeah, you're working your way in with the All-Americans, with the Fall Nationals, and then you're right into the dual match season, no pause in between, because you're right, that pause is what throws off the rhythm. Um, and, you know, again, for college to be a pathway to the pros, you got to give these guys and girls opportunity to compete in pro circuit events in the summer. And, you know, it's been so great, I think, as well, to see so many college campuses host 15 and 25 Ks. And it does feel like this fall in particular, we've seen so many different players have success at those 15, 25 K events. Is is that a theme? It almost feels like now all of these schools, you almost have to host some sort of pro event to be in competition for these top recruits. Well, I think it it has, I mean, it's certainly been a, a recruiting advantage for the schools that have been able to, been able to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and also it helps to prolong their, their fall season you know if you mm-hmm. have one early uh before you start and you have one late and in some schools cases and they're going to have one you know in early january as well to kind of get you into into uh, tournament mode or you know playing matches mode those are all uh advantages at the same time you know it's a long season so do those teams kind of burn out you know april and may as well when you're really trying to gear up and play your best tennis. So, you know, there's give and take there a bit, but it's certainly become a trend with many schools to have a lot of professional tournaments, giving their guys a lot of opportunities to play in those events, you know, not burning their budgets by having to travel all over the place to play. So there's a lot of advantages to having those events. And then obviously, you know, wild cards and other things like that to entice juniors to to come to a school to play there because they know they're going to get to play a, a lot of professional events. I mean, all those things are, um, are, are reasons, you know, why I think a lot of this is going on uh, and the trend continues to kind of to be an arms race of just how many events that you can host uh, at your facility. And obviously it helps the USDA because, you know, somebody else is funding some of those events and there are a lot of uh pro tournaments uh, whether it be utr or these you know 25s or challengers or whatever for players to play and and continue that pathway from junior tennis to college tennis onto the onto the circuit Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And obviously, uh, again, it's certainly helpful for those college players who have the pro circuit aspirations to be able to get some events in in the fall before returning for the dual match season. Speaking of that dual match season, I know there are guys we haven't talked about and plenty of returners, and I want to give you the chance to talk all about all of them. But talk to me about the freshman, Casper. And I'm, I'm going to call him Julio. I don't know how to say the last name. I don't want to butcher it too badly. But how have they adapted? How are they doing on campus? Obviously, it always feels good to get two blue chips yeah uh, i'm really excited about them alex they they both uh they bring a lot of fire um they're both talented they've played lots of junior matches so you know they've they've got quite a bit of experience already uh and and you know it's always good to have the new blood to come in 
to uh, energize your veteran players, uh, and both of them have have they're they're really good competitors, which I love, um, feisty competitors, and uh, you know, so I, I'm real pleased with them, and and they're great kids. They work really hard. They love the the team format. They're real team oriented guys, and sometimes you worry about that with good juniors. Are they are they kind of more on the selfish side because mm-hmm. it's really the only thing that uh, I guess bad trait, if it if I could say there was one about uh, tennis players. You know, being junior tennis players, you mm-hmm. have to worry about yourself and think about yourself, and you've maybe not played a team sport, and to kind of put them on a team, there's a learning curve there for them. But these two guys are have both come in and been. You know, super well liked by our guys, and uh, have just, you know, fallen in step with what we've wanted and asked for, and and both of them have had some, you know, you would expect some spotty results. Uh, some weeks really good, and some not. Uh, sometimes chicken salad, and sometimes chicken. You know what? Uh, but it, you know, that that's part of this uh, process and growing and the maturation process of young players. But I, I'm really excited about them both. I, I think they're both they can, you know, they can certainly compete and uh, have been holding their own when they've been playing in these college matches. So I think they have a bright future, both of them. Mm-hmm. And talk to me about Pearson Guido because you know technically third years now. I mean, it's the most unconventional juniors you're going to find in college tennis history. But, you know, what a growth have you seen from them? Those are two guys who obviously got to play a bunch of matches at the bottom of the lineup last season, even when they were taking their lumps. What growth did you see from them, and how are they How are they competing this year, uh, this fall? Well, I mean, uh, I'll talk about Pierce first. You know, Pierce has got a big lefty serve, and we're trying to get him to play big man's tennis and to be mm-hmm. comfortable doing that. And so, you know, I think it – takes a little longer to develop an all-court player um, just because there are nuances in the midcourt and coming to the net and other things that you need to learn to do Uh, and he's adapting and doing well he's playing better I see you know moments of brilliance and then obviously I see some others that uh, that I know we still have some work to do but uh, work in progress there but I know he's excited about the challenge of moving up uh, with regard to Guido, uh, you know, he had a really good um, uh, All-American tournament. He went through the pre-qualifying. He had a couple good wins. He, um, then, he cut, then he hurt himself uh, and is kind of coming back from injury. Uh, but I saw some really good things from him in the, in the fall and, and thought he was playing at a much higher level. He was playing a bigger game, another kind of what I would call a more of a defensive-minded player but now playing more aggressively that he's going to have to do. And I I saw progress from him. And then the other guy that I've really been um, excited about and how well he's picked up his game is Rafael Perot. I mean, Mm -hmm. he is, he has really accelerated his growth as a tennis player. He's working really hard. He's working uh, on his game and getting much better. I'm real pleased with, with his progress, he's had some. He had some good wins in the fall, and uh, I see a, a significant jump from him uh, from last season and the matches that he got to play. 
Mm-hmm. And looking at your schedule for 2022 at Arizona State to kick things off, you're at the Sherwood Intercollegiate Cup as well. You've then got the kickoff weekend. You're at UCLA, uh, or excuse me, you're hosting, but you've got UCLA first, and you know then Arizona Texas Tech. That's just as easy to go two and zero as you go zero and two that weekend. And then you know as you mentioned at Oklahoma, you've got the Buckeyes coming down to College Station as well. You get into the SEC season from there. You already mentioned why you schedule the way that you do but the question I have for you particularly in a season like this where I don't want to say it's a rebuilding year but it's certainly a year with guys who haven't experienced perhaps this level of college tennis before should we waive the 500 rule moving forward that was something they got away with in 2021 is that something you'd like to see gone permanently because obviously that's something you may have to monitor down you know if things break poorly it's not out of the world that's something to think about Sure, absolutely. I mean, it's the first time that we've had to even consider it, you know, mm-hmm. in quite a few years. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I I get it, you know, to a certain extent. But, you know, think about what's going to happen in 25, mm-hmm. at least in 25, when we get Texas and Oklahoma in our conference. And think mm-hmm. about how many times. To- I think last year, if I'm not mistaken, there were seven um, SEC teams in the final 16, mm-hmm. and there were four in the final eight. Mm-hmm. And now you add, you know, Texas and Oklahoma to that mix um, in, in a couple of years' time. Um, that rule is going to be brutal for for playing in the conference. And, and we are all, I guess, in, in agreement that we want to play a full SEC schedule. Mm-hmm. I mean, we want to play everybody. And what that means is obviously fewer non-conference matches and we want a full, you know, conference tournament. And also that, that means the same thing. So there are going to be opportunities, but there are also going to be some really good teams that may or may not be 500. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is at this point, uh, but, uh, but it's certainly something that we're going to have to all consider, you know, more seriously, especially when you continue to have a, a, a brutal schedule like we do year after year. Mm-hmm. I forgot to mention Texas coming down to College Station as well. That is quite That's the right. schedule you've put together, Coach Denton. I like it. What's that? It's quite the schedule. I like it. I'm a fan. Yeah, <laughs> no, you be, certainly would you have my interest. Would you, if you were in my shoes, would you be backing off this year and playing? No. You know? Well, first of okay. all, no, because you never de- you never do that because then, let's say, one of them has the down year. Then it's an excuse for them to back away. It's, and by the way, right. I'm not saying it's going to be a down year for Texas A&M. I'm just saying it's not the, oh, I know exact sure quantities of what Habib and what Bashiro and what Aguilar are. But certainly, you know, Ohio State, Texas, those are, you know, top ten sort of teams. And so, you know, right. as— as you look as you look for your team more than the results what are the what are the things you want to see from them this season as you go throughout the year well obviously i want to see them you know continuing to work like they're working and they really are working hard so mm-hmm. i'm happy about that uh and i just want to see our guys raise their level mm-hmm. to, to play what i think they're capable of uh and play with a lot of passion and excitement um, in these matches and obviously a lot of fight, which our guys have always been really good at. 
Um, so I, I want to see those things, and and then we'll see where the chips fall. I mean, we we're testing them severely this year. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know we've gonna we're gonna have our challenges uh, just because of so many, as I said earlier, really good teams in our conference alone. I could name you probably five teams that could be in the top ten, mm-hmm. um, besides these other non-conference matches that you that we've discussed that we have on our schedule. So you know we're clearly going to play maybe as many as seven or eight top ten teams this year, mm-hmm. um, and and that's a difficult schedule. But hey, it's why they came to A and M. Yeah. No, I love it. Well, you know, again, with all of that said, just a couple of other things I want to ask you about, and then I'll let you go to kind of rapid fire around here. You talk about, again, with a young team, you know, it's so important to have this full fall, I'm sure, with them to teach them the Texas A&M doubles principles and just get them acclimated to life as a college athlete. The eight-hour rule and just the practice rules in general, 25 competitive dates, is that enough for today's modern Division One college tennis, or do you think those numbers should be increased to reflect just the demands of what it takes to be a, a top uh, college tennis player? Obviously, you don't want to endanger the student-athletes, but if any coach is doing that, one would think you know the recruiting system and the rumor system would punish them accordingly. Right. I don't think it's enough, personally. Um, I, I think that um, they need more time. They need more reps. Yeah. Uh, this is a hard sport, Alex. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many shots that you have to own. And uh, then you have to put those into, you know, combinations and uh, all that, as you know very well. And I think uh, you can't get the reps in the number of hours that we get. So what you end up having is court rats. Yeah. You know, guys that want to be out there, you know, longer guys that when the coaches go uh, into the office or leave to go home, they're still wanting to continue to play and wanting to practice because they know that they're going to have to do more if they're going to really reach their goal, which is to go on and play pro tennis. <laughs> and uh, uh, yes, it's a challenging schedule, uh, but we did it. We played more tennis. We played more matches and still we're able to keep up our grades and uh, it's difficult but you know if you're wanting to compete against the pros who have the whole day to play tennis uh, that's something that you'll end up having to do so I I think it's uh, I I wish it were different it's not at this point but maybe that can be you know who knows that can be revisited at some point here in the future but I, I certainly would like to see us have more dates uh, and I certainly would like to see us have uh, more practice time with these guys. They came here to get a good education, but they also came here to, to be really good tennis players, and I, I wish we could spend more time with them. Here's my thing is, and the problem is there will obviously be people who abuse this, but if a player is volunteering their, volunteering their hours and wants to be on court, why are we legislating against a coach being able to coach them? Like that to me is the maddening thing is if a player is saying, hey, I would like to do an extra hour and a half because I just cannot get this forehand down the line passing shot right. I have – former Grand Slam everything and tennis czar Steve Denton at my disposal to help me with this shot, but I'm at minute number 801. And it's just like, that to me is the maddening part. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I I hear you. Um, (laughs) 
but at, at the same time, you know, we've got to try to all play by these same rules. And it's true. And they know that coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know the limitations that we have. And so the way to do that, I think, is to get players that are super motivated and uh, can work with each other. I don't think you necessarily have to have a coach there, you know, every single moment of every single day. You need to take some ownership of your game and you can work on those things. And then when when things aren't going well, you know, that's where the communication comes in with your coach that you can kind of – talk about that and then the time next time you're together you can spend more time on those things i guess is my answer at this point that's the best that we can come up with yeah, you know no. under the current under the current rules that we have no it, it makes sense with that in mind it's time to get a little bit goofy uh, i know i've run some of these by you before but just some ideas for college tennis moving forward coin toss overrated we get rid of it instead of it start of every match and of course those first five minutes when fans are trickling in how do you get them engaged one point drop and hit head coach versus head coach winning coach <laughs> decides the serving arrangement on every court <laughs> well that'd certainly get us all back out on the court a bit <laughs> you're telling me you couldn't chip and charge your way to a couple of wins I absolutely it's possible you know I mean certainly could take take up a lot of the court that's for sure no I love it or if you're over 50 your assistant can play it's just about getting again everyone locked in the other thing and I know this is more radical but I think the 40 minutes and I know it's frustrating for coaches of college tennis doubles is just the most exciting 40 minutes in all of tennis because it's three courts it's easy to follow everything happens so quickly every point matters the problem is when you have that 10-minute break between doubles and singles when all of that momentum is seemingly lost. And then for the next 30 minutes, things don't really matter from a fan's perspective. My solution to that, it's time to get funky. Two doubles matches, three singles matches, everything worth one point, everything starts simultaneously. Where are you on changing college tennis's format again? Are you good with how things are? Well, you know, if you do that, then I think you're getting really close to a possible team tennis format. Sure. Which, you know, scares me a little bit because that means um, maybe there's only one coach, you know, yeah. for the men and women. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll have to say I wouldn't be thrilled with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I get the simultaneous part. The, the problem with it is that then, you know, some of your players are only playing doubles and some of your players are only playing singles. And mm-hmm. and I don't know that that's ideal. I think to keep them involved with both helps their development more. Um, and I certainly wouldn't want guys to, you know, have to choose in a big match. Well, today you're only going to get to play doubles against one of the best teams in the country uh, and not get to play singles. I'm I'm not sure that's ideal. But, well, that's where you know, substitutions come in, Coach, where after you're done with the doubles, hey, all right, you're subbing into court three singles. We need you here. And that's where things get particularly funky. Now, I can see, I don't know, again, it's a lot, but why not get interested? Why not get in, get invested? Make the product that much more, I suppose, intriguing. Well, there's a lot of ways to make it more intriguing, I think. <laughs> yeah, I just sure. does, it, does it really, uh, you know, I go back to are we – is our 
is our main objective still to develop players? Sure. Um, and if it is, well, well then, you know, I'm not sure some of those formats do that as well, but you know, I guess unless we try it, we're never going to know, are we? It's fair. My, I guess the follow-up to that would be, and it's two options here, because lineup, you know, every there's always lineup disputes. Who plays where, whatever it may be. So in lieu of setting the lineups and to offer that player playing number six singles, who may still have pro aspirations and wants their shot at the number one guy, lawless lineups home team gets to match up however they'd like to match up however they deem fit and just you know again play it how you play it (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean that's a there that's a there's a possibility of certain types of things like that working i guess you your lower ranked players would get you know options or play against some of the top players they would certainly get that or or even weighted matches. In other words, mm-hmm. the the number one counts more points and you play points. I mean, I'm sure there's other types of things that have been talked about and discussed. Um, the problem with that is, I guess, is if you, if you had pretty good crowds, uh, would you want some matches that were kind of lopsided mm-hmm. uh, if you played your number one guy against – maybe the other players number six player what yeah. what did that what would that look like and would that you know part of the excitement of college tennis is these all these damn matches are so close mm-hmm. you know they're they're close in the doubles they're close in the in the singles match so many matches go down to a three all match and and that's the exciting part of it and would you give up some of that if you tried some of these different kinds of formats i don't know no it's fair my last two questions for you where are you at with no ad scoring are you fine you know again obviously there was some hesitation from everyone when they first implemented it it feels like i mean it's obviously not going anywhere but i do enjoy the element of just the sudden death aspect and how fast matches can swing has it grown on you i well you know honestly we played it in college so i i actually thought and we played it in team tennis and some of my best years were years that I played team tennis, played mm-hmm. no ad scoring, played one set, and then jumped back out on the circuit. Um, and it taught me to get off to a fast start. And obviously, if I could break serve, you know, with my serve and volley game at that time, you know, I was pretty much guaranteed to win the set. So it taught me to get off to a fast start. It also taught me, though, um, I think to value every point more and, and to be clutch, you know, (laughs) you're, you're playing a lot more close games and close points. I, I actually think actually the returner has a bit of an advantage, (laughs) um, with the no ad scoring just because, um, they just, they, they can kind of neutralize the start of a game or the end of a game with (laughs) some great returning and, uh, I think gate. I think there are more breaks as a result of of this no ad scoring. Where you get down fifteen forty and you get back to deuce, well then you got to fight still maybe for another ten or fifteen minutes to win the game. You get down fifteen forty, you got to win three points in a row. Yeah, and uh, that's pretty tough, uh, even as a even as a good server. So I I think that it's um, that no ad scoring has been really good in a lot of respects. The part that is the difficult part, and I'll give you the example, 
uh, of the matches are shorter. So mm-hmm. your concentration can be shorter. Mm-hmm. And obviously playing the tour, if you want to go play the Grand Slams, you got to be able to learn how to play three out of five sets. So fitness is another issue, the physicality of it, and the mental um, concentration required to stay in there for longer periods of time, I think is the other biggest hurdle for college players to have to go and transition to the tour. Mm-hmm. Um, so with regard to just the, the points themselves, um, I, I, I like the fact that you have to be clutch, you know, mm-hmm. and every point counts. I think it sharpens your skills, uh, in that regard, but the length of a college match, the length of a, a, reg, a tennis match and the struggle that you have, the mental struggle of maybe holding serve for 15 minutes or something that, that obviously is something that you know, you lack when you have to play no ad scoring. No, no doubt about that. Well, then my final question for you, and I've asked every coach this, so I want to give you that same chance. Give me the recruiting pitch. Why should I become an Aggie? Why should I come down to uh, College Station, play for Coach Denton? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, (laughs) I I think that, you know, um, for us, I mean, we've had pretty good history. Uh, uh, we've got quite a few guys out still trying to play the tour together, to play the tour. Um, and and our formula has been to kind of help players, give them opportunities to, to go on and play uh, mm-hmm. and play with some success. Um, I think also uh, one of our advantages is, you know, being in the SEC and playing a lot of outdoor tennis. You know, I still think, and I I know this probably is not um, something the northern schools or the indoor schools want to hear, but, I mean, I think tennis is better outdoors. Um, um, All the slams are played outdoors. Obviously, they close the the roof when they need to, but if they have the option, they want to play outdoor tennis. And I grew up, you know, playing outdoor tennis in the heat in the conditions and and i i think the game is is better suited for that um but um that's just my opinion so uh if you come to texas a&m you're going to get to play a lot of outdoor tennis you're going to play in a great conference and and hopefully you're going to get some good coaching that'll give you a chance to go on and play at the next level and oh by the way you're going to get a unbelievable education uh from a a top quality school like a&m that's as good as any school in the country. Yeah, no, I love to hear it. And yeah, I, I mean, the results speak for themselves, right? Arthur Rindernash, top 60 in the world. I'm sure that's exactly where you saw him, by the way. You're like, yep, this is exactly where I see this going. Uh, you know, when he walked on campus as a freshman. But again, Coach Den, always eternally grateful for your willingness to put up with our nonsense here at Crack Rackets, your willingness to come <laughs> on and chat with us here on the show. Obviously, wishing you and the guys safety, health uh, throughout the rest of, you know, this, this offseason and obviously throughout the course of your 2020 season well thanks a lot for having me alex and and thank you so much uh for all that you're doing for college tennis and and uh, promoting our sport in such a fantastic way i i know you have an allegiance to a school up north there uh (laughs) but you do a great job of of making us all feel important and uh i saw you were even down in the in our neck of the woods this last week and i think that's great 
um, to kind of bring some humanity to this <laughs> this sport that we've got. And and uh, you, you you've done uh, a lot. We, we missed out on we missed out on this kind of stuff uh, for a while. And so happy that you've been able to to bring our sport to the forefront. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I'll say two things off of that. A, I knew I wasn't going to make it in tennis when every year I was like, oh, man, I hate transitioning to the outdoors because obviously I am a man of Michigan. And I was like, okay, that indoor hard courts are my best surface. That probably shows me my ceiling. Like I know what it is moving forward. Um, But, you know, B, down in Texas, because I think last weekend, first of all, it got to like 35 degrees at night. And it was funny because that's what we're at here in Indy most of the day now. And just to see the panic on everyone's face, I was like, oh, they say, oh, you can't stand the southern heat. I was like, no, you can't stand the northern cold. I was like, please, that's that's what builds builds toughness and character. And I'll never forget uh, 2020. Obviously, you guys were there as well. Madison, Wisconsin. I think the heater broke in the Nielsen Tennis Center, and that had to be the coldest conditions a college tennis match was ever played in, like 35 degrees indoors. It was it was something else. Yeah, it was an interesting experience, that's for sure, and it, it, you know, something uh, that we're not used to down here, obviously, but uh, it... it uh, you got to deal with adversity as a tennis player, so that's just another one uh, uh, that you need to deal with and and be able to handle it. Absolutely, but again, Coach Dunn, thank thank you so much for taking the time. Be safe, be healthy. We'll chat again soon. Sounds good, Alex. Thank you.